Yesterday we left off in 1 Kings 18, where I'll pick it up again today. <clears throat> As a brief review, we saw that John the Baptist uh, was a type of Elijah, the original Elijah. The Christ made that very clear. And that there is an end time Elijah to come there in Malachi 4. So a lot of scriptures go together, including Christ even saying there in Luke and in Matthew that uh, there was yet another Elijah to come. That John the Baptist had been one, but he didn't restore all things. And he didn't do a lot of things that the book so shows Elijah is to do. So I felt it important that we go back and read the story of Elijah in the Old Testament to see what might be brought forth in the future. Uh, we'll do the same thing with Moses, because Moses and Elijah showed up in the Transfiguration, showing they were to be involved right at the end. And of course, Joshua and Zerubbabel of Haggai and Zechariah are also shown to be uh, types as well of those who built the temple, Ezra, Nehemiah, and others will be building the end-time temple. And between Zechariah 4.14 and Revelation 11, we see that the Moses and Elijah types, the Joshua Zerubbabel types, are all the same. Just different individuals brought from the past who did certain things in the past who will be used to do certain things here in the end time. So we saw some, I think, insightful things from the first part of this story <clears throat> yesterday. But we came down to uh, Elijah saying to the people, How long halt you between two opinions? If Baal be God, follow him. If God be God, then forsake everything of Baal and follow God. So he then made the statement in verse 22, uh, Unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the eternal. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So he realized at that point that of the prophets God had sent, going and coming, uh, he was the only one there at that time in Israel to represent God. Just one left. We saw in Isaiah 41 that also uh, one will come to speak of them as well. So he was only one at one point, just a voice, the only one there. So he had to stand against all the prophets of Baal. So he said, there's 450 of them. Verse 23, Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. So he's going to run a test here to see who is a prophet of God, and who's a, who the prophets of Baal are. And call you on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Eternal. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now, Elijah could have stood there and argued with the prophets of Baal, saying, I'm the prophet of God, and they would have said, We're the true prophets that you should worship. And it would have gone nowhere. It would have been, he said, they said. And that gets you nowhere in terms of proving a point. So, he said, let's have a test. Let's just see whose God will answer. Now, this is quite a story, really. And some of you who've been around many, many, or several decades at least, might remember David John Hill, who was probably the most colorful speaker we ever had, uh, and he went through this one time, I think at the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, he dramatized it, and oh, what a story he told for about a half an hour about what went on here. I'm not going to go there. If we had several thousand people, I might try to at least give you a small facsimile of what he did, but uh, we'll just read it and, and see what happened is the main point of the story today. That kind of drama needs a big audience, I think. But anyway, the point is, a test was to be made. 
So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock yourselves, dress it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. Now he was going to dress his all by himself, which took a while. But if they had six or eight or ten guys with knives, it wouldn't take very long for them to dress theirs. You guys go first. So they did. They took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. So they yelled, they screamed, they jumped up and down, uh, anything to get Baal's attention. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah, being a very, very sophisticated person, uh, mocked them. So he used sarcasm and cynicism on them and said, Cry aloud! You're not hollering loud enough. For he is a god. Either he's talking or he is pursuing or he's in a journey or maybe he even sleeps and you've got to wake him up. So he just taunted them. Uh, Come on. Where's your god? Where are your gods? And that, I'm sure, infuriated them, which is what he intended. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. Well, they're getting really serious about this. And it came to pass when midday was past. They've been at this since morning now, so we're halfway through the day. They prophesied till the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any answer nor any that regarded. Dead silence. And Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the eternal that was broken down. He must have called for this meeting at a place where there had been a true altar of God that was at that point broken. Um, And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Eternal. He made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. So a pretty good-sized area. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. So he's going to make his task even harder than theirs was. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. So there's a lot of emphasis going on here. He's being somewhat dramatic and make, getting, truly getting their attention and getting the attention of the prophets of Baal, I'm sure, as well. Anyway, the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, And that I have done all these things at your word, your authority, your behest. Hear me, O Eternal, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Eternal God and that you have turned their heart back again. So here he was in the process of turning the hearts to the Father in heaven And had called on Abraham, Isaac, and Israel as well. So I think this proves what I told you there in Malachi 4, that our supposition back in worldwide years ago that we were just supposed to make the daddies and the the children uh, be friendlier with each other uh, was not what that was really all about. Because here Elijah is doing something that will show them who the Father in heaven is, and who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom he called on, were. So that is the higher meaning of what we interpreted in a much smaller context in Malachi 4 in years gone by. 
Then the fire of the Eternal fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Just whoosh! Took it all. Rocks and all. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Now again, when we get into some of the prophecies, and this is prophecy, by the way, as it was carried forth uh, already a time or two, but we'll yet again, we'll find that the point is, who is God? Here in this ungodly world, ruled by Satan, nobody much knows who the true God is anymore. And not even the church realizes the true God and what He is doing at this time. So there is a great unawareness. And even the ministry of the greater church of God today is playing into the hands of Baal, trying to do things that God is not doing, as I said yesterday. They don't know what God is up to. That has to be determined. Verse 40, And Elijah said to them, Take the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now the, the people took the prophets and brought them down there. It says that Elijah slew them. I don't know whether he slew all 450 uh, by his own hand or whether he had it done, but he certainly oversaw it. And Elijah said to Ahab, the king, Get you up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Now remember, he had said it will not rain until he said so, and that was three and a half years. Same three and a half years are spoken of of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, that it would not rain wherever they said, whenever they said. Though he had confronted, and God had shown who God was. Elijah didn't really. Elijah didn't send the fire. He called for it, but God sent it. So it was actually God who proved who God was. We need to always bear that in mind when we see what men do uh, at the behest or the direction of God. But it is always God himself who truly shows who he is. But he uses human instruments in carrying forth many, many of the things that he does. So, it was going to be time to reign. Now, we will find in some of the prophecies as well, in Joel, for instance, where it talks about the former and latter rains will come upon God's people here at the end time, during the time of the day of the Lord is pending. That's what Joel is writing about. And he says at that time, God's people will have the former and latter rains, meaning great blessings. So, after the prophets of Baal were destroyed, and the people saw where God was and whom he was working through, which was Elijah and not any of those prophets of Baal, then God says, okay, we're going to have rain now. Now that you understand who God is and you understand where I'm working, now blessings can come. Okay? We'll see that in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel as well. I don't know how much of that we'll cover in this series because you'd have to go through all of it to get all of it. But the story is there and we've been through it. Anyway, he says, I hear rain coming. Now, there wasn't any rain yet, but he knew it was coming. He knew the schedule. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. Now remember, Ahab was a wicked king. The wickedest up to that time. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. So he sat down, put his head between his knees, and was going to talk to God. Or he was going to see what God was doing, I guess would be a better way to put that. 
So he put his head down and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And Elijah said, Go seven times. Interesting, when he would do something like resurrecting the child of the widow, uh, he laid on him three times. Uh, He poured water on the bullock three times. And here, to restore blessing, it seems there's a bit more effort involved. Seven times. Go look. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there arises a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand, just barely able to see it. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and get you down, that the rain stop you not. So he said, No more eating and drinking, Ahab. You better get home, because otherwise you may get in a flash flood here. The rain will cut you off. And it came to pass, in the meanwhile, that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Not just a little rain, a great rain. Now, God says he'll send the former and the latter rains all at once in the first month to his remnant people at the end time. So we've been in a famine and a drought of the word, and now our nation is going into drought and famine. Some have been caused by loss of crops through lack of rain, and some loss of crops because of too much rain, but the, the result is famine in any case, no crops. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Eternal was on Elijah, and he girded his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He must have had some help from God because very few men can run ahead of a horse or a chariot, but that's what he did because the hand of God was on him. Now, Ahab had news that he went to tell his wife. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel, she was a southern girl, you know that? Jezebel, Clarabel, Annabel, Maudibel, everybody puts bell after it down south. Anyway, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she sent a dire message back to Elijah, I'm going to kill you within 24 hours. And when he saw that, he rose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. I find that somewhat amusing in a way. Here he had faced all Israel who believed in Baal. He had faced down all the prophets of Baal and had them slain, fearless, before all those foes. And then one woman says, I'm coming after you, and he grabs his tucker and runs as fast as he can go to escape one woman. Well, she had soldiers, I'm sure, but it was the woman who terrified him. But we see Jezebel showing up uh, several times uh, in prophecy. I think she showed up in Herbert Armstrong's life when uh, Ramona was planted there in a place where he would marry her and help bring the church down. Uh, She shows up again in Revelation 3 with Thyatira where she leads people astray and they'll go into tribulation, it says very clearly there. And I would not be surprised that the end time Elijah runs into a Jezebel as well. Some woman somewhere. And uh, she must be quite fearful, it would seem. Whether it's a type of a church or just an individual, I suppose, remains to be seen when that may transpire. Anyway, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. So she says, I'm coming to kill you. And he says, oh, my, 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 I think I'll just die. (laughs) Kind of strange. I'll, I'll die ahead of time. I don't want Jezebel to get hold of me. 
We do have juniper trees around here, don't we? Uh, and he said, it is enough. I've had it. I can't take it anymore. There's too much pressure on me. Too many enemies. Too much going on. Uh, my system just won't take it. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. My fathers are all dead. You might as well just let me die too. So he was under a great deal of pressure, and I think in the end time we will see that there is pressure there greatly as well. Did it not say there in Mark 9 that Christ said it will be like it was with him, that they would do as they pleased and put great pressure on and even say that he's nothing. He's nothing. Don't worry about it. And they did kill John the Baptist, literally. So uh, there's quite a bit ahead in troubled times for those who will serve God. Verse 5, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said, Rise and eat. Um, you're not going to die here, buddy. Uh, you've got work to do yet. Uh, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Don't be depressed. Get up. Eat. There's work to do. We can't quit on God. Remember Jonah. And he had been given a commission, a job by God. And he said, oh, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And he wound up being swallowed and masticated for a while and came out as white as your shirt, if you got a white shirt. So he said, Eat. Because the journey is too great for you. And he rose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. So he journeyed to Sinai, where the law was given. And we will see later on that Elijah and Moses go together. Uh, they're put together in Malachi 4. says, Remember the law of God given to Moses. And then it talks about Elijah in the same breath. So here we see him going to where the law was given, where Moses' feet had stood. And he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the Eternal came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So the angel had told him where to go, what to do. He wasn't to eat for forty days. I don't know what he fed him, but it must have been pretty good stuff. And he said, I have been very jealous for the eternal God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So they sought John the Baptist's life and took it away. They're going to seek the life of the end-time Elijah, and God will thwart that. And he said he will take care of the rebels. He'll purge the rebels from among us, as Ezekiel put it. Uh, but the end-time Elijah will also die in the streets of Jerusalem just before Christ returns. So they were seeking his life. Now earlier he had said, I'm the only prophet around, and he was. And then he thought he was the only person around. So he must have been feeling pretty lonely, pretty frustrated, and pretty depressed. So he says, what are you doing here? And he says, oh God, I got troubles, troubles all around me. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Oh, poor me. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mountain before the eternal. This was Sinai. And behold, the eternal passed by in a great and strong wind, rent the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the eternal. Pretty powerful display. You and I have never seen a wind that actually cracked rocks together and broke them. We've seen pebbles fly, maybe, but we've never seen anything like this. So this was a very powerful demonstration that God made with the rocks and the wind. I don't think even a 120-mile-an-hour hurricane would pick up rocks and break them on each other. Well, this, this was something stupendous, if you will. But the God was not in the wind. 
and after the wind, an earthquake. But the eternal was not in the earthquake. Whatever God wanted done was not in these powerful displays. Now, it was powerful to whom? To Elijah. Elijah needed to get the picture that he wasn't alone, that there was a great God who was with him, who could break rocks against each other, could create earthquakes, could shake up the whole world. Now, in the end time, what's God going to do? He's going to move mountains and rocks, and there will be earthquakes in different places, and God is going to make known His great power. But he wanted Elijah to know that, hey, little Elijah down there in the cave, hiding, you're not alone. There is great power that you need to trust in and believe. Are we not there today? In a world ruled by Satan, awaiting God's hand to show his mighty hand and strong arm, which he's promised to do. So he showed it. This is a pretty big, big display for just one person. I said earlier, maybe we should save the drama for a bigger audience. But here, God gave a huge drama to one man so that he might understand. Now, he knew who God was, and that had been demonstrated before the prophets of Baal. But maybe Elijah still didn't quite get it, or he wouldn't have been there in the cave feeling sorry for himself. So God gave him a personal display. He didn't kill him like the prophets of Baal died, but I'm sure it got his attention. Anyway, that wasn't the end of it. Verse 12, And after the earthquake, a fire, but the eternal was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. <coughs> God is going to rock the heavens and the earth very shortly now. But in the meantime, all of this is going to be shown, it is going to be told with a very still, small voice. Not with great power, not with world-echoing strength, not like the demonstration God had just given Elijah. But what God is going to do is going to start very, very small and very, very quiet. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering end of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, that had been asked... And he gave excuses and felt sorry for himself. And then all heaven and earth broke loose before him. So after that demo, he's asked again, what are you doing here? And he said, I have been very jealous for the eternal God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Same song, second verse. Exact same, the second verse. Didn't even change the words. And the Eternal said to him, Go. Now he said, he didn't even pay any attention to the excuse this time. He just said, Go. I've got something for you to do. So he sent Elijah to do something. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you come, anoint Hatzael to be king over Syria. Now remember, that this context started back in chapter 16, and there, there had been a rebellion, there had been a coup, there had been an assassination, uh, there was division in Israel, divided it into two parts, and then is when God sent Elijah to the fore to begin to show where God was, to begin to heal. Now, here we see the beginnings of some healing that he sent Elijah to do. Remember again, James 5.17, the example of Elijah was used there that the effectual fervent prayer uh, could avail much and healing could come. 
So what is back here in Elijah's story is used in the New Testament to depict healing among, in, within God's church. So he says, Anoint Hatzael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. So you had supplanters there who had taken over, and God is beginning to do something about it by having Elijah anoint two to be kings over those people. And then he also said to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Elbemaholah, shall you anoint to be a prophet in your room. In other words, you guys are going to be roommates, you're going to work together. You'll no longer be a sole prophet in Israel, but you'll have somebody who will work with you. And that is very significant. We'll see a little later on that Elisha was anointed because Elisha did certain things after uh, Elijah was taken off the scene. <clears throat> and that is significant when we start considering Haggai, Zechariah, Revelation 11, and other scriptures. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hatziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. So this Elisha he was anointing would work with these two kings, and they would slay the enemies of God within Israel. The prophets were already gone. Now, those in rebellion would also be taken care of. And then he tells him, You're not as alone as you thought you were. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. So God says, it may seem like you're the only one left, Elijah. Uh, no one paying any attention. You're the only one here to serve God. But there's 7,000 more. That's just Israelites, not necessarily of any uh, great office. Uh, the kings were pagan. They were going to be uh, chased by these two that Elijah was appointing. Do we see in the end time, in Micah 4 where God says, I'll make you a sharp threshing instrument, and you'll send seven, even eight men out against the king of Assyria and defeat him. So uh, the two at the end, the types of Moses and Elijah, are going to be doing the same things. We'll get to Moses later. Uh, what happened to Pharaoh and his armies before Moses? Just as a, a little glimpse. Because there are two. And we'll even determine who will be the leader of the two very clearly. Uh, so he departed and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. Uh, and he with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray you, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. So he knew that the throwing of the mantle, whether anything was said or not, meant you're supposed to come and follow me. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen. Oh, he, he burned the gear and everything that uh, he used to put on the oxen to plow. Uh, he wasn't going back. Now, how did Christ term it? Once you put your hand to the plow, you cannot turn back. Luke 9.62. So, that is exactly what Elisha did. He burned all the gear. Range, yokes, everything. He burned his bridges, if you will. He says, I'm going to follow you, Elijah, and I'm not going to leave anything here to go back to. We have to have total commitment. Don't save anything back. I think really that's primarily what got Ananias and Sapphira in trouble in the New Testament because they held some back. They were not fully committed to what the apostles were trying to accomplish and what God was directing them to do in a time of drought and famine. And that was totally commit. Sell everything you have, turn it all in, and be sure everybody gets fed. Now, that wasn't the beginning of communism, but it was a 
an emergency measure taken in a time when people were starving. But those two (coughs) decided to hold something back. And that was really where their sin was. They lied about it, which compounded it, but it was the holding back in the first place that was the biggest problem. We can't hold back. We've got to be totally, utterly committed to God. If we hold anything back, we are putting ourselves ahead of God and we've broken the first commandment. That's idolatry. I put myself ahead of God. We can't do that. Good, good lesson in that right here. God chose Elisha well. <laughs> Just right off the bat, he made a good choice. So he did that, and he gave to the people, and they ate. Then he rose and went after Elijah and ministered to him. Uh, let's see, let's go over to chapter 21 now. There's a gap here in the story of Elijah. We don't need all of that. To 21 verse 17, there was a a gap in time, and then Elijah shows up. The word of the Eternal came to Elijah the Dishpite, saying, Arise, go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to possess it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Eternal, Have you killed and also taken possession? Interesting point here is that God was very specific in what he told Elijah to do. Uh, God, in the end time, is going to let his witnesses, his people, his end time church, know exactly what needs to be done. He will be very specific about it as he was here. In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you. (laughs) God told me where you were. Because you have sold yourself to work evil in the sight of the eternal. Going down to verse 23. And of Jezebel also spake the eternal, saying, The dog shall came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Now that didn't change the fact that he was going to die, but the evil would not come while he was still alive, it would come upon his sons. There's an interesting parallel there between that And the story of Hezekiah in in, uh, Isaiah 36 to 39, where Hezekiah had shown everything in the house to the world, as Herbert Armstrong did, and I think Isaiah 37 through 36 through 39 is the story. Uh, I think he, Herbert Armstrong, was a type of Hezekiah, Uh, and he even had a heart attack and almost died like Hezekiah did, and then his life was extended to finish what he had to do. Uh, But he said, because of Herbert Armstrong's attitude that the trouble would not come while he was alive, but his sons would be taken to Babylon and be neutered there. And after his death, did not his spiritual sons take worldwide back into Babylon, and there the church, the sons, were neutered? Zechariah puts it a little different way in chapter 5, which we went through, in that two unclean birds took it, a lead weight was put in its mouth so that it would be silenced. Neutered, silenced, it's all the same thing, different analogy. And immediately then, in Isaiah 40, a new work begins, and we'll get to that. Now let's go from there to 2 Kings 1. There's quite a bit more here. <clears throat> Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. He had, he had died, as had been said. Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. Probably internal injuries, I suppose. 
And he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. Now after all that Elijah had done and God had done, the next king inquired of whom? <laughs> it's just never ending, is it, in the human realm? That it's so easy to go back to worshiping anything but God. Anyone but God. Ourselves, even. Anyway, he was concerned for himself and inquired of Baal. But the angel of the Eternal said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that you go up to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? So he said to Elijah, go, go intercept those guys. Ask them this question. Why are you going to Baal? Now therefore, thus says the Eternal, you shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up, but shall surely die. And Elijah departed. Simple message. You guys go back, tell Ahaziah, he's a dead man. And when they turned back to him, he said to them, Why are you now turned back? And they said to him, There came a man up to meet us, and said to us, Go turn again to the king that sent you, and say to him, You're going to die. Seven, and he said to them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? He wanted to know, Who is it that says, I'm going to die? And they answered, He was a hairy man, and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, Yeah, it's Elijah the Tishbite, all right. Uh, that's who it is. Now you find John the Baptist came in clothes, and God said it wasn't, he was not a soft man. He was not dressed in finery like you'd see in the king's palace, but dressed in leather and hair and fur, <coughs> and so on. So... A wild and woolly, uh, outdoorsy type was Elijah, and so was John the Baptist. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him. And behold, he sat on the top of a hill, and he spoke to him, You man of God, the king has said, Come down. So we have a confrontation occurring here. Ahaziah didn't want to die, and I guess he figured if he could kill the prophet, uh, he could keep the prophecy from happening. So he sent fifty. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Now this is not what the king wanted to hear. So again he also sent him another captain of fifty with his fifty, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, thus has the king said, Come down quickly. King wants to see you. King wanted to chop his head off. That's what he wanted to do. And Elijah answered and said to him, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. The fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Elijah was getting some confidence by now. Uh, he wasn't just all by himself and feeling sorry for himself. But at this point, he said, If I am a man of God, God will answer. And God did. And showed that he was a man of God. The king wouldn't give up. You know, we, we do like our own lives. The king still hadn't decided that it was time to die. Verse 13, And he sent again a captain of the third fifty with his fifty. Now, the third captain must have been mortified after what happened to the first two groups. So he changed his tune just a little bit. The third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said to him, O man of God. <laughs> he didn't have to convince him he was a man of God. This guy was, he says, I'm a believer now. O man of God, I pray you, let my life and the life of these fifty your servants be precious in your sight. So a little bit different attitude than the first two uh, who came up very presumptuous and very brash, I'm sure, thinking that fifty men could take one old prophet. It uh, didn't happen that way. 
Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Be not afraid of him. And he rose and went down with him to the king. So this turned around where not only had the captain of 50 kind of changed his tune and believed, now Elijah was also to show that he believed God, that if he went down, he would not be killed. So Elijah had to show his own faith in God. So he rose and went down. And he said to him, Thus says the Eternal, For as much as you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down off that bed on which you were gone up, but shall surely die. Well, he finally got what he wanted. He got Elijah brought before him, or Elijah came before him, and he said, Guess what? The second opinion is the same as the first opinion. You're dying. So he died, according to what Elijah had spoken. Chapter 2. And it came to pass, when the Eternal would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Now, this must be something that was done on occasion with Elijah, that God took him up in a whirlwind, because it says when he did this, or when he would do this. And we'll see another occasion of it here in a moment. Uh, I'll comment more on it later. And Elijah said to Elisha, Tarry here, I pray you, for the Eternal has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said to him, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. He had intended to leave Elisha there. But Elisha was totally committed. And he said, no, no, you're not leaving me behind. Uh, I'm your roommate, remember? And the sons of the prophets, prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said to him, Know you that the Eternal will take away your master from your head today? And he said, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. So Elijah and Elisha had communicated, and it was obvious Elisha knew that Elijah was about to be taken away from him. They separated here, we'll see. They'd been together and then separated. We might see something like that in the end time as well, where two are working together and then separate for whatever reasons God has in mind. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray you, for the Eternal has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Eternal lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. So Elisha did not want this separation. He knew a big separation was coming, and he had separation anxiety. The sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Know you that the Eternal will take away your master from your head today? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. You're not telling me anything. You're talking to the choir here. I know. Elijah said to him, Terry, I pray you, here, for the Eternal has sent me to Jordan. Third time. So these things happen in threes and sevens over and over again. I'm not leaving you. I'll not leave you. And the two went on. And again, fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood low to view from afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided there, hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. Now God did this more than once. Red Sea, when they crossed the Jordan to go into the Promised Land, and now uh, Elijah does it again. <clears throat> and it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I be taken away from you. So here's your final request before I go away. Elisha said, I pray you, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Well, that seems like a pretty presumptuous request on the face of it. <clears throat> and he said, You've asked a hard thing. You know, can I grant that? That's, that's a very difficult thing to, to deal with. Uh, 
Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so to you. But if not, it shall not be so. In other words, Elijah said, I really can't answer this. We'll leave it up to God. If he makes it visible when I go, then you'll get the double portion of the Spirit to do things beyond what I have done. And we'll see that again uh, in other scriptures where one will supersede the other. Verse 11, And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, got between them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So God had sent a chariot of fire and picked him up and took him up into the air, took him away. And Elisha saw it, so he did see. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in pieces. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. Now we're going to, this goes on with the story of Elisha, and I'm going to drop it here. We'll come back to Elisha later because it's very, very important to the end time and the two witnesses of Revelation because there's interaction uh, that is spelled out here. Second Chronicles 21.12, let's look at right quick as well. I think this is an important adjunct to the story. Here, uh, Israel was still sinning. Jehoram, in verse 9, went with his princes and they smote the Edomites and so on. And Elijah was given a message for Jehoram. There came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet. Now, we just saw that Elijah was taken away in a chariot of fire. He didn't go to heaven, as the Protestants would tell you. No man is descended except he which came down, not even David. is clear in Acts. So he had gone up into the sky and apparently was deposited somewhere else. And that had been something that had happened before with Elijah. Remember he said, when... He was taken up in the past, and then he was taken up again. So anyway, Elijah was now not on the scene. He had been sent somewhere else to do something different. And one of those was to send a letter, when he heard what was going on, to Jehoram. So he was still alive. He had just been removed from that scene, and Elisha was carrying on in his stead. So God had other things for Elijah to do. And the letter came saying, Thus says the eternal God of David your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and so on, uh, to go whoring like the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and also slain your brethren of your father's house. Behold, with a great plague will the eternal smite your people, your children, your wives, and all your goods." And they'll have great sickness by disease of your bowels until your bowels fall out by reason of the sickness. Uh, verse 18, After all this, the Eternal smote him in his bowels, and two years later, his bowels fell out. Verse 19. That must have been a very, very painful, slow death. To be so sick in your stomach that you, they rot, and it takes two years for them to fall out. Did we read something about the two witnesses being able to send whatever plagues, whenever they chose, wherever they chose, there in Revelation 11? So both Moses was used to send plagues on Mitzrayim, and Elijah was used to send plagues on Israel and upon King Jehoram. So the parallels are all back here of things we read in the New Testament and later on in the prophecies. <coughs> Uh, at this juncture, let's also examine uh, Ezekiel just for a moment to see how one of these is carried forward. 
his chariot of fire with the horsemen and so on that we just read about. Uh, Ezekiel 1 and verse 4. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst there I was the color of amber and the midst of the fire, or out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each had four faces, four wings. Their feet were straight, and it goes on to describe them like sparkling and burnished brass. <clears throat> they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Must have been pretty astounding looking. Their wings were joined one to another, and they turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they had the face of a man, of a lion, of an ox, and an eagle. Those were what their faces looked like. Their wings were stretched upward, two wings on every side. Uh, they went every one straight forward in verse 12. Where the Spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearances of lamps, it went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And they ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. So they moved like lightning. And as I beheld the living creatures, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with his four faces, the appearance of the wheels and their work was like the color of a barrel. They had one likeness. Their appearance and their work was as the wheel in the middle of a wheel. And it goes on to describe them and the spirit and the living creature was in the wheels, verse 21. Uh, verse 24, And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of an host. When they stood, they let down their wings." And a voice came from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, the appearance of a sapphire stone. And then describes that in its glory. In verse 28, is the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud, like a rainbow, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the eternal. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one that spoke. Now, this is described again in Ezekiel 3 and in 10 uh, as the chariot of God. Let's see, in chapter 10, I looked and behold in the firmament, and it begins to describe this, and a man clothed with linen in verse 2. And he said, Fill your hand with coals of fire from between the cherubims, and scatter them over the city, Jerusalem. And he went in my sight. And the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Eternal went up from the cherub, and the court was full of the brightness of God. And then the wings and so on. And the man clothed with linen said, Take fire from between the wheels. And it goes on to describe all this. And wherever the head went, verse 11, of Christ, I guess, I'm sure, whether the head looked, they followed it. They turned not as they went. So if, if Christ were riding this chariot, he'd turn his head, and they would go where he turned his head. No steering wheel. Uh, they just did what he wanted them to do. The spirit of the living creature was in them, verse 17. So... It's described as a chariot of fire back in Second Kings. And it makes me wonder how the two witnesses will go around the earth to preach. Now we might, first of all, think, well, we got jet airplanes, maybe they'll go. Uh, but airplanes have to have places to land. And if people knew they were coming, they might close the airports, block the runways. They might refuse to sell fuel. I don't know that that would be the way. And they're terribly slow. 600 miles an hour isn't very fast when you're trying to cover the whole world and talk to everybody in the space of three and a half years. 
Now, God did remove Enoch. Just, he just flew him away. Uh, he had picked a, Elijah up, apparently, several times and taken him to a different place. And then, when he took him away that last time, he sent a chariot of fire and put him in it. Now, these, Elijah is a type of the end time. Now, this thing moved like lightning. And it was impressive looking, wouldn't you think, from what we just briefly went over there. Very, very impressive. So I wondered, will the two witnesses just go out and go from city to city by either plane or be picked up and taken there? Will they come home at night to Zion? Uh, will they come home on the weekends? How will that be done? Well, if you're in a chariot of fire that, look, that moves like lightning... You could be home in, what, seconds, minutes from the other side of the earth. So it might be that they come home and sleep in the bed and under the rocks, on the rocks. Now, I don't, I don't think it'll be that uncomfortable, but in the place of refuge in Zion. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but based on what we're reading there about Elijah and that being tied to John the Baptist and the end time witness... Uh, it would appear to me that God will use some kind of supernatural uh, transportation. And when they see that coming, it'll be on TV all over the world. There will still be communication worldwide at that time. Uh, I think that's very clear when it says when the two witnesses are killed in the streets of Jerusalem, the whole earth is going to throw a party. So they have... Uh, capacity to get word around the world instantly of what has happened in Jerusalem at that time. So the New World Order may cut down the Internet for us for a while. They may do a lot of things to cause communication to cease in this country while they take it over. But it will be re-empowered, and when the beast rules for 42 months over the earth, totally, the times of the Gentiles, they will have worldwide communication. But I think God is going to outdo them. Doesn't He? <laughs> Doesn't He have that power? So it appears to me that since this is brought up in Kings and it is again uh, emphasized in three different chapters in Ezekiel, that this is likely what will occur. God's done it before. He'll probably do it again. I thought I'd get further than this. Um, let's hit Second Kings 10 just for a moment and see that God, when He makes prophecies, uh, causes them to come to pass. Second Kings 10 and verse 10. Now know that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Eternal which the Eternal spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Eternal has done that which he spoke by his servant. Uh, earlier, it's mentioning Jezebel and her witchcraft in verse 22, and how she painted herself up in, in verse 30, and looked out a window. Now, where is the one I want here? Uh, verse 17. And when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained to Ahab in Samaria till he destroyed him according to the saying of the Eternal which he spoke to Elijah. So the prophecies he made uh, did come to pass. There's one here. Oh, 936 is where I want. I kind of skipped ahead of it. 936. Uh, wherefore they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Eternal, which he spoke by the servant of Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. Oh, it was between 30 and 36 where she was killed. She was at the window, uh, all painted up and dressed up. And uh, let's notice this. As Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace, who slew his master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs, and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, 
and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her under foot. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, Go, see now this cursed woman, and bury her, for she is the king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands, because the dogs had eaten her. So everything that Elijah had said had come to pass. God doesn't fool around. What he does through the end time Moses and Elijah will also come to pass. Now he said he had 7,000 people who had not bowed to Baal. Let's make one more reference to that in Romans 11, uh, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? In the New Testament, they were facing somewhat the same situation that Elijah had, in that people had come to the church and then there was a falling away. He says, God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Don't you understand what the scripture said of Elijah, how he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and dig down your altars, and I am left alone and they seek my life. But what says the answer of God to him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 <coughs> excuse me, men who have not bowed the knee to the king image of Baal. And even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now we've read many scriptures and we'll get back to them about how God is going to pull out a remnant here at the end. Interestingly, Elijah had 7,000 and Paul quoted that about the early New Testament church as well as a reference point that God had saved 7,000. So I have long thought that perhaps the final end-time remnant will amount to 7,000 people. That may not be an exact, but certainly there is a precedent for it if it turns out to be that. So we're out of time for today, and I was going to make a, a little turn here from from Kings into another section, so we'll save that for tomorrow.